Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is Have Not Seen This, an in-depth look at a favorite movie selected by our guest and brought to us for conversation. This week's episode is a little different than the ones we've had so far. It's our first episode where we don't have a guest who is a part of the old podcast. It is my hope to bring in more voices and not repeat guests, and this is my first attempt at doing that. Kat Milliner brings us Princess Mononoke, which is the other reason this is a little different, because anime is way outside my wheelhouse when it comes to movies. For some reason, I never got into the genre other than a film here or there. But a couple of years ago, I was introduced to the films of Miyazaki, and Princess Mononoke is pretty high up there on my list of favorite movies, so I was really glad when Kat suggested discussing this one. So here we go with this week's episode, 1997's Princess Mononoke. So I'm trying to remember other movies that you've introduced me to. Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm, which you did not enjoy. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ten Things I Hate About You. Which, which you I did. did. Hannibal, although that's a TV show. But you, th- you enjoyed that. I think yeah. you enjoyed that one more than you were even expecting to. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, well, and Totoro. Yeah, which... Even though it's definitely on the more child movie spectrum, it's very cute. Yeah, and definitely not as uh, deep as Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, even Ponyo, which is geared more toward a younger audience, um, does still have that kind of humanitarian uh, save the earth vibe. So it's. I don't know, Miyazaki has quite a spectrum that he works on, but most of them, whether they're geared toward a younger or older audience, tend to have that message of, this is the Earth we have, and it's the only one we get. (laughs) It's just that Ponyo focuses mainly on the ocean, whereas Princess Mononoke is mostly about deforestation. Well, I guess then we should just go ahead and and jump into the topic. The movie uh, this week is Princess Mononoke, written and directed by... uh, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, adapted for the English version by Neil Gaiman, and it stars uh, the voice talents of Billy Crudup, Billy Bob Thornton, Minnie Driver, John DiMaggio, Claire Danes, Jada Pinkett Smith, Gillian Anderson, Keith David, among others. In a time when gods walk the earth, an epic battle rages between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest. When the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out, this place will be the richest land in the world. Now, the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess. I'm not afraid to die, and I would do anything to get the humans out of here. And one brave warrior. Fight like a demon, boy. Like something possessed. What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded by hate. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! Crudup, Claire Danes, 
Minnie Driver, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Billy Bob Thornton. You cannot alter your fate, however. You can rise to meet it if you choose. Princess Mononoke. So, pretend I have not seen this. All right. How do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? How do you sell it to them to get them to want to see it? Um, well, typically I start with the fact that Miyazaki's animation style is very unique and it's also absolutely gorgeous. Um, the detail and his styling are pretty unique even in an anime standpoint i think it's fair to say a lot of other artists um take from him also you know this this movie is has a strong fantasy component so if you're uh, a, a fan of fantasy then you'll definitely enjoy it badass female protagonist you have lots of intrigue into it where um there is more sides to everything than you think. Uh, nothing is really black and white. There's a gray area to each side. And you can kind of see where each side is coming from in their own right. It has a strong and powerful message. But it encapsulates it in a really gorgeous and moving fantasy environment. So what got you into anime? Because that's um, like an area that I definitely have never had much passion for. So I'm curious for those who are into it, what got you? What drove you in that direction? Well, it definitely started, um, a, a, my, my best friend um, in middle school was into anime. So I started um, looking at some different, um, mostly manga first, um, which is basically the, the written form, the comics. And there were a couple of, you know, anime shows that I did enjoy. I liked Full Metal Alchemist. Um, I watched a lot of Bleach, a lot of uh, Death Note. But the older I've gotten, the more um, I have actually kind of strayed away from anime as a genre. But I find myself still being very much in love with Miyazaki's world and uh, the universes that he creates and his art style. I know that it can definitely be put in the anime genre um, just because of this style, but I do think that he brings something to it that is different and special, particularly the work and detail that he puts into simplistic backgrounds and things like that. There's a specific shot in Princess Mononoke where you see rain start to fall, and you have this very focused shot on um, rain falling on a stone, and then you see it fade into actually getting coated with water and you see you know the deepening of the colors and things and i appreciate artists and directors and filmmakers who have that exquisite attention to detail and i think that when it's being drawn especially since all of his are drawn by hand that it really puts something extra into it so i think that's why even though i've gone away from what I would consider as the anime genre that Miyazaki um, and his creations still tend to capture my interest and capture me as, as an audience for it. Gotcha. So all of the movies that exist, you know, why, 
why Princess Mononoke is your choice? Well, it's definitely one um, that I fell in love with the minute I watched it. Um, you know, I have personally, um, I have a very strong connection with animals. So um, I can uh, relate to San, um, our, one of our main characters. Um, definitely, you know, seeing the benefit in uh, animals over humans. There's a lot of times when I find myself very dissatisfied with humans as a whole and uh, look at animals as kind of a better alternative for company. So um, definitely I can, I can relate to San and the struggle that she feels. Um, and I think a lot of people in my generation can even say that they feel the struggle of people not listening and paying attention to the way that we're treating our planet and feeling that if we voice our concerns in the normal way, um, we're not really listened to. So sometimes you have to be a little more, you know, easy. even San gets violent about it. She, she fights for what she believes in. And um, I love all of the creatures in Miyazaki's world. Um, but I have a particular love for Yakul, who is uh, the red elk that is a main character. Um, I have a particular love for the Kodama, uh, which are the little tree spirits, and they're featured pretty prominently in this film. And also, I mean, you just gotta love giant talking wolves that <laughs> are, you know, defending their home with the best of their abilities. And, you know, <laughs> San taking in um, Ashitaka and uh, even though Maro, you know, loves San and treats her like a daughter, she's looking for any excuse to eat Ashitaka because he's a human and he can't be trusted. And, you know, it's just, I feel like it's a very strong dichotomy uh, throughout the film. And I feel that the way that you can see both sides of the argument as being valid because the people from these villages and the people from Iron Town are just trying to make their way in life. They're trying to make a living and have their village and be profitable, which, you know, is, is required for, for life. Um, as a human, you need to have a vocation and, you know, make a living. And um, Lady Iboshi does have very good traits. Um, she takes in the lepers and, you know, she gives them a home that otherwise they would not. She takes care of them. You know, all the women in the village who are working the uh, bellows are brothel girls who otherwise would be selling their bodies just to stay alive. But Lady Eboshi has given them new freedom. You know, they have their own agency over their bodies and their lives. And yes, they work hard and they work arduously, but it's something that they can feel pride in and something that they can have control over. So, you know, even though she is what you would mostly call a villain from the standpoint of San and, and Ashitaka from being this, you know, money-hungry, deforesting, you know, monster and trying to kill the very spirit of the forest himself, you know, she's not holistically a, 
a villain. She does have a very strong sense of camaraderie with her fellow man. I do want to talk about that ambiguity uh, in a little bit, but let me um, let me back up just a little bit mm-hmm. um, and and talk about some of the introductions because Miyazaki has a very interesting way of of introducing his key characters. Uh, almost every one of them has a very memorable entrance into the movie. And and that goes from the beginning of the movie because the movie opens with uh, Keith David's awesome narration over the beginning of it about being a time of gods and demons. Mm-hmm. And so we, we first see Ashitaka is when the, uh, the demon boar is attacking and we don't know anything about him. And yet we're already seeing him in combat and sacrificing himself to try and save somebody else. The first time we see San, she's, you know, sucking blood from the wolf mother. You know, she's, she's introduced with blood on her face. Mm-hmm. The first time we see the monk character, he's commenting about how this tastes like super donkey piss. You know, I mean, like all of these characters have very memorable first appearances to immediately make them stick out to you. Mm-hmm. And even Lady Eboshi, you know, the first time you see her is when the pups and San attack on the road when they're just trying to get rice back to the village. And you immediately see her in conflict and combat with the wolves. And then, you know, after the wolves retreat, you get your introduction to Morrow, uh, which is when she actually gets wounded and gets the bullet that San is then trying to suck the poison out of the wound out of later. So you definitely have kind of punch you in the face introductions to characters and you get to see, you kind of get to see their stance and where they stand in the world and where they're going to stand in the film uh, pretty immediately. Yeah, he doesn't waste any time on that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the beginning of the movie is almost overwhelmingly fast because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because within the first few minutes, you have Ashitaka, you know, holding off the the demon, the demon leaving behind his wake of destruction, discovering the iron ball is is what caused the the boar to transform into a demon, and then he's being uh, exiled from his town because he allowed the demon to touch him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's all like that's just rapid fire bam 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 you don't even really get the chance to know what he's like within his culture before he's being exiled from his culture yeah and um we don't really get to learn a lot about um ashitaka's uh village which are the amishi um we do get you know comments on uh yakul the the red elk that he is riding um we do get um comments from other people of oh well you know the amishi people are said to ride red elk and they're said to drink out of these red bowls that uh ashitaka is seen using um but we do the most that we get about the amishi people is that everyone else thought that they were long dead everybody else thought that the amishi people weren't around anymore well and most of that information comes from jigo yeah we, you know he immediately takes a liking to Ashitaka and he travels with him. And, and it's, again, it's a really interesting thing because you have this character who is quite ugly, frankly, um, but is a traveling monk and you go, Oh, okay. This is going to become like the comic relief. Y- you think he's going to be comedic relief. You think he's going to travel along with Ashitaka. And then he turns into one of the film's major antagonists. Uh, I would even argue that, um, 
he ends up being more of an antagonist than even Lady Eboshi because we find out as the film goes further on that Chigo is only on the side of Chigo. You know, um, we have Ashitaka who's kind of caught in the middle of this and trying to find a way for everybody to live in harmony. You have San who is on the side of the forest and the animal gods and the animal spirits. You have Lady Eboshi uh, who is, you know, looking out for all of the people of Irontown. And then you end up with Chigo, who's really only in this for a paycheck. Right. He's he's not even on the side of Chigo. He's he's a mercenary. Yeah. I mean, which is completely contrasted to the monk appearance that he has at the very beginning of the film. Which I think, yeah, is a is it's a very good deceptive form for him to take. You know, oh, I'm just you know this traveling monk, but actually, you know, he's traveling around with a pardon from the emperor to you know bring back the forest spirit's head for a bounty. You know, and he ends up having this band of mercenaries at his beck and call, which, you know, you definitely don't get the sense of that, you know, when he first meets Ashitaka. And uh, you do have those comical moments and you have the moment, you know, where they're sharing a meal and he is, you know, freely and gladly cooking and sharing a meal with Ashitaka, um, which does seem more in line with the vocation of being a monk. Um, But the further you go, the further you realize that Chigo really only has one purpose and one thing in mind, and that's to get the glory and the money that he's seeking out of this entire venture. When did you first see this movie? I probably saw it, I would say I was maybe in eighth or ninth grade, so like early teenager. Do you think its predominance of powerful female figures influenced you in any way? Um, I do think that when I first saw it, you know, I, I did find it very, very cool um, that you had these very strong female characters um, from San to... You know, even though she's not a, a human female, you have Maro, um, you have Lady Eboshi. Who is, as you said, she's responsible for Irontown. I mean, she's their leader. Yeah, and um, she also shows herself to be quite a humanitarian. You know, she's, she's taking in lepers and she's buying up the contracts of girls who are working in brothels. You know, she's obviously, she cares about the future of, you know, these humans and you know, especially these brothel girls, she expresses, you know, love and affection for them multiple times throughout the film. And I do think that it was kind of self-empowering to see not only females in these roles, but females looking out for other females. I feel like a lot of times, you know, it could have been just San versus Eboshi, you know, and we couldn't have gotten that side to Eboshi. But the fact that she cares so much for these women and looks out for the entirety of Irontown and puts the women of Irontown at this, you know, higher position in in her heart and her mind, um, I think even with empowered women roles, we often get women tearing each other down, and we can sometimes get women tearing each other down for positions of power. So. Um, 
I think even though you could you could peg Eboshi as an antagonist, I do think that it was really important to show that she was trying to lift up and empower all the women in Irontown and that she felt that they could do anything that they actually put their minds to. You know, they were doing the hard labor. They were the ones keeping the bellows of Irontown, which is literally the center of life in that village, alive. They were given the most important job, and it was a hard, laborious, physical job. But she knew that they had the strength of will and the strength of spirit to do it. You know, you're saying it's a it's a hard laborious job. Well, also their their shifts are four days long. They said, mm-hmm. um, so it's it. But it but they even say it beats brothel work. Mm-hmm. D- just to hit on a couple of points that you made, um, Iboshi is kind of a she's a hard character for me to figure out because on one hand you have them developing these new rifles that she wants, um, and, and they're specifically designed to pierce gods and samurai. Like those are what she is prepared to fight. Mm-hmm. So on one side, she is planning on being militant against these gods of the forest and against the samurai that would come attack her. But on the other side, as you said, she treats these lepers kindly. So it, it really balances her out to some degree. It prevents her from being an over-the-top villain. And then you have the same thing with the women that are under her care is that, you know, they are, they are not being walked over. They could, they know they could be in a different place. So they, they do this hard work because it beats being in the brothel and they want revenge for their husband's death. They're not driven to attack the samurai blindly. They, they want revenge for the family that they lost. And I I do think um, it is something that's kind of, kind of goes throughout Miyazaki's films is that he does a very good job of showing that things often aren't black and white. People, uh, situations, governments, you know, there there is good and bad. And uh, I think he does a good job of showing that he, he makes his characters very well-rounded where, you know, I've, I've mentioned earlier, you can see the point and the stance of every side in this film well i personally with the exception of chigo um but you can see where they're coming from lady eboshi is ready to be militant and to fight and to attack but in her mind she's doing it to the betterment of her people to protect iron town and improve upon it and see it grow more prosperous i i find it interesting you mentioned you know eboshi and the women and Moro and of course San, but you didn't bring up Toki. Um, Toki is um, Toki is is kind of I, I don't want to say a product of Iboshi, um, but I do feel like she is very much the second in command. She shows amazing strength of spirit. She shows that she can deflect uh, a lot with humor. You know, even when she gets her husband back, she's like, oh, well, you've got a broken leg. I, I wish the wolves had eaten you, you know, because now you can't, you can't drive the oxen. So what good is an oxen driver uh, with a broken leg? I feel that Toshi kind of does take on that role of almost comic relief that we expect to get from Chigo. 
because whereas she is another very strong female character, she has this kind of almost laissez-faire um, attitude towards the more flippant areas of life. But you do see that she is incredibly resilient. Um, when Eboshi is gone, she ends up kind of taking a role of responsibility and a uh, more directing role, um, especially when Iron Town is being directly attacked. Toki ends up being the one kind of organizing how they're defending Iron Town. But Toki is also, I think, the first in Iron Town to fully trust in Ashitaka. Lady Eboshi and, you know, her, her right-hand man, Gonza, uh, obviously have reservations about Ashitaka, especially when San attacks Irontown and he stops the fight between San and Lady Eboshi and um, basically tells them that he's leaving with San and that they're, you know, not going to kill her. Um, I feel like a lot of people in Irontown definitely had resentment and uh, misgivings about Ashitaka for that action. Um, but I feel like Toshi, um, Toki was the one to see it for what it was. And what it was was Ashitaka preserving life. And um, that is something that she can personally respect. So I feel like Toki is the one to look at that and not see somebody betraying Iron Town, but somebody who is determined to preserve life. I think that makes a good transition to from the conversation about Iboshi and, and Irontown to more the ecological side of the movie, which, as you said, I mean, the, the artwork for the natural world is absolutely breathtaking. And I think it's it's even more breathtaking when the corruption appears and there's kind of this horrifying contrast with with that beauty. But one of my absolute favorite moments of this movie is the first appearance of the Nightwalker, where you transition from the Kadama making their little noise to this beautiful musical cue as the Nightwalker appears. And it's just kind of a just a stunning moment. Yeah. Um Miyazaki definitely has a way of painting nature he he has a way of presenting nature in a way that it absolutely is and in a way that it is in our world but he can put it in such a light that you realize that there is already magic there and then you know you you do get the fantastical elements but even you know if you don't have a kadama or a nightwalker there you know just the way that he portrays nature you realize that you know whether those spirits uh, ever existed or do exist, or if they're there or not, there is truly a breathtaking magic that exists within nature itself. And I think that his appreciation for nature and the beauty of it and the magic that is there definitely pushes his storylines because the main kind of message in this film is 
humans have to be careful of what they're doing because yes, you know, you can understand them wanting to expand because they've run out of iron and they have to expand iron town so that they can be profitable. But at what cost does that come? It's a shame that that message has, you know, died as this movie's gotten older. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's very unfortunate that, um, that's not as prevalent in the minds of, of people. Um, even watching this today, that it truly is a message about our world and how we treat it and the impact that we make upon it. Well, I, I find that contrast really interestingly presented from the start, because you have that opening scene with the demon attacking uh, Ashitaka's people. And after he defeats the demon, they have reverence for that fallen spirit they still they don't see it as an evil thing they still see it as part of the natural world and there is still a a a reverence paid to that and then by contrast you when we first see iboshi not trying to go back to her but it's just a, a contrast to what we have first of all we already know her because she's the reason that that boar turned into a demon and secondly that contrast of they have this reverence towards this demon that was destroying their village and her attitude when the fight is over with after Morrow has been chased away, they ask, what about the men that she pushed over the cliff? And Ibosha's answer was, they're dead. Let's get the living home. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's a huge contrast to this village that is paying reverence to a spirit that almost destroyed them. And she's just like, the dead are dead. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, and I think that that does – you know, it, it gives us um, a very good platform for Ashitaka and understanding um, Ashitaka's point of view because, you know, you, you see this this wise woman from his village come out and, and pay this these respects to, you know, at this point they didn't know that it was a boar god that had been transformed. They only knew that it was a demon and that it, it had attacked. And paying that respect and saying that they're going to raise a burial mound for it and that they wish it no ill will, you know, even though it, um, you know, it was, it was attacking, it was destroying, it was leaving a literal wake of death in, uh, you know, in its trail to have that respect for it shows a lot of what we get to see later in Ashitaka because he does have respect for Iboshi, but he also, has a deep love and respect for the world around him. And the problem that Ashitaka has is that his people have lived in harmony with nature and, you know, with these spirits. And even after a demon attack, you know, that didn't change the way that they were living their lives. They still lived in harmony with the natural order of things. And I think that it is a very hard concept and a very difficult thing for Ashitaka to see humans having such disregard for that just because, you know, he's, he's never seen that before. You know, the Amishi people live amongst themselves. They don't have contact with any other outside people. When he leaves, he's, he's never allowed to return. And... The fact that Ashitaka, you, you, you see him understanding the point of both sides. You see him realizing that there is valid truths to what both sides are and what both sides are saying. What Ashitaka 
tries to condone and explain is the way that his people have lived for hundreds of years, which is with a mutual respect for one another. And I think that that is really part of the underlying message of the entire film that Miyazaki is trying to get across, is that yes, to a certain extent, you know, humans are going to have an impact on nature. That's that's unavoidable. But what's really important is that we don't lose that reverence and respect for it that is necessary for both sides to prosper and thrive and properly live. So I think that Ashitaka really becomes a vehicle uh, for that theme and that presentation of events and um, presentation of of an ethos um, along that line of there needs to be a balance. A balance has to be struck for both sides to continue on. So it's interesting because I, I don't know that I like Ashitaka all that much, uh, particularly as the story goes on. Um, I, I found a very different response to his character. Like when he goes to Irontown and he finds out that it's under siege and he wants to help them. Mm-hmm. They, you know, his first question is, where's Iboshi? And, he finds out that Iboshi's gone to go kill the forest spirit. And instead of being like, well, I have to stop her. He says, well, I will go get her. His, his motivation there is to go get her to help save Irontown, not to go stop her to keep the forest spirit alive. And that, that, that kind of bothers me that he's so passive about that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain that that was his actual motivation. I will say that, yes, that is exactly how he presented it to the people of Irontown. Well, and to us as the audience. Yeah, but we do have, when he actually gets there, he does actively try to talk Lady Eboshi out of it. And he does actively try to, you know, he, he gets it, he gets in touch with San and he's like, this is, this is going to happen and it has to be stopped. You know, we can't allow the forest spirit to die. You know, he tries to talk to Chigo and Lady Eboshi about, you can't, you can't do this. So whereas I do, I do see what you're talking about. And we do have that presented to us in that way, in that moment. I do think that that was a presentation from Ashitaka for the situation. Well, and I feel like he does the same thing, not trying to jump to the end of the movie, but I feel like he does the same thing at the end where he tells San, you know, you'll live in the forest and I'll go help them rebuild Irontown. And my reaction is, what? Why would you rebuild Irontown? That was bad. Personally, the way I interpret it is, again, not to skip ahead, but we do have some very significant events that happen that kind of change everything and everyone in this situation. I think that we even have a change in Eboshi as far as how far she's willing to go against what is there and nature itself because she has kind of incurred its wrath to an extent. So I do think that there was some major changes of heart um, as far as most of the characters go. You know, even even San gives up trying to kill Lady Eboshi, which is her goal through most of the movie. You know, most most of the movie, uh, San and Maro are both determined that Lady Eboshi has to die, and they want to be the ones to do it. it, it they both want it to be from their direct influence. Oh, yeah, because Maro has that great line about, um, 
trying to save my strength to kill. To bite off that damn woman's head. Yeah. But we do, we see Song, you know, leaving at the end. And she knows very well that Eboshi is alive. So that, to me, shows an air of hope um, at the end. Iron Town will be rebuilt, but I don't think it's going to be the same as before. I don't think uh, Ashitaka, San, Lady Eboshi, or any of the people of Iron Town are the people that they were before all of that happened. And um, the way that I interpret it and the way that I, that I like to interpret it is that that moment is showing us that that balance has been struck. That yes, you know, this village is going to rebuild because they feel that this is their home. But you have San returning to the forest with her brothers, and you get a sense that the war, as it were, is is over. And you know, whether that's a lasting peace or not, you know, we don't know. But I do get a sense that at that time when they're saying their final goodbyes, that both sides have come to an agreement and that the balance that has been wanting and pushed through the whole film has finally come to fruition in a manner. So what you're saying is we need um, the forest spirit to come out and attempt to annihilate all of us in order to uh, learn this lesson in the real world? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, maybe he, uh, he needs to have his head, uh, you know, temporarily removed and try to take us all out with his big gloopy self for humans to finally get the message that, Hey, what we're doing is bad. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked for, you know, almost 40 minutes and, and haven't really discussed much about San or the, uh, forest spirits. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about them, I guess. Okay. I do find it interesting. I just kind of backtracking just a little bit because this is about Ashitaka, but I do find it interesting when the, when the forest spirit heals him, mm-hmm. you know, it heals his mortal wound, his bullet wound, but it doesn't heal the demon mark mm-hmm. because he can't escape his fate. And it doesn't heal the cut on his face from where he and San first met and she cut him. Mm-hmm. What significance do you think? I mean, obviously, as I said, the demon mark, he can't escape his fate, but what, what significance do you think that cut has? I think, um, the significance of the cut is San making an impression. <laughs> you know, yeah, you women can do that. Definitely make an impression. You know, when your your first interaction is trying to stab somebody, but you're because you're trying to kill somebody else. But um, you know, if I had a nickel for every time that happened to me, <laughs> you know, even when San has a dagger to Ashitaka's throat, you know, the first thing that he says to her is, "You're beautiful." She's really taken ba- aback by that. I feel like the cut on his cheek kind of serves as a visual representation of the impact that San actually has on him. You know, that from the moment they meet, you know, she's <laughs> physically and uh, spiritually made made her mark on him. You know, he's, he's seeing this fierce, strong-willed young woman who was literally thrown at Maro's feet by her human parents as a sacrifice to save themselves, only to be spared and brought up by Maro. You know, she's she's lived her life among these gods and these spirits, and they are what she knows. They are her family. 
you know, like anybody else, when your family and your home is threatened, you're going to do whatever you can to defend them. Going back to what you said about, you know, presenting an even depiction of things. And we talked about, you know, Iboshi is not the over the top villain. And, you know, the the women are are given balance. Nature in this film is given balance. You have Maro and the wolves who are very much defenders. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're going to mess up anybody who comes to their turf, but they're not aggressive beyond that. And then you have the boar mm-hmm. who want to take the fight. They want revenge. they want to go on the offensive. They want revenge. Yeah. And you have the gorillas in there as well who want to go on the offense. So it's it's uh, there's a, a wide range of mentalities and and ethics kind of represented in the different species. Mm-hmm. And then again, I think you know as far as nature goes. The forest spirit uh, is kind of akin to Ashitaka. He takes kind of a back seat. You know, Ashitaka doesn't really choose a side as far as fighting and what's going on. He just wants to preserve life. The forest spirit takes even more of a back seat. You know, you, we see a few times where he intervenes, but he doesn't save Okoto. No. He doesn't save Morrow. No. Um, he didn't save Nago from becoming a demon, you know, and I feel that that's more of a representation of nature kind of being a more gray force. As long as you don't cut off its head. <laughs> as long as you don't cut off its head. But nature includes disasters. Nature includes life, but it also includes death. You know, nature includes sickness. Nature includes pain. And, you know, so the forest spirit sees all of that and, you know, it's it's aspects of life. And when it was time for Lord Okoto and Maro to go, he didn't save them because it was, it's part of nature for everything to end and everything to die. You know, even at the end of the film, the forest spirit himself isn't, I I don't think that I would necessarily call him dead, but he is very changed. He definitely doesn't have the same form that he did. So I feel like that's also a good message of, you know, nature is, is beautiful, but it's also a scary and powerful force. And it does have some pretty negative things that can come along with it, but it's part of the formula. Right, right. So the movie sits at 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's it's a pretty popular movie as far as critics go. 76% on Metacritic, just to look at a couple of the reviews. Roger Ebert's statement was, the drama is underlaid with Miyazaki's deep humanism, which avoids easy moral simplifications. There is a remarkable scene where San and uh, Ashitaka, who have fallen in love, agree that neither can really lead the life of the other, and so they must grant each other freedom and only meet occasionally. You won't find many Hollywood love stories, animated or otherwise, so philosophical. Princess Mononoke is a great achievement and a wonderful experience and one of the best films of the year. One of the rare, and I had to dig to find this, a rare negative review uh, Jay Boyer of the Orlando Sentinel said, watching this film is often like observing a group of people playing an elaborate game for which you don't know the rules. What they're doing obviously has enormous meaning for them, but that meaning is mostly lost on outsiders. 
And I will say my, my issue with Boyer's uh, review is that he's trying to take the approach of, you know, this isn't a Pokemon movie. He, he's comparing Princess Mononoke with a movie intended for kids. And that's going to be a problem. Even Miyazaki was quoted as saying the target audience for this is people older than fifth grade. Oh yeah, and I would I would definitely say that that's backed up by some of the violence that you get in this film. <laughs> you know, when when you get battle scenes with Ashitaka, especially when the demon mark flares, you get limbs and heads being severed. Um, it's definitely not a G-rated movie, um, and I think that's a mistake that people often make with animated films is they presume that since it's animated, it it has to be for children. And there are some Miyazaki films that are definitely geared more toward a younger audience. But for the most part, he puts very deep theological and uh, ethological questions and queries and, you know, uh, messages into his films. They're designed to make you think and they're designed to make you feel. And I feel that he is a wonderful... Uh, creator in the sense of making you feel it's not just you know a popcorn munching film it it makes you think and it it prods these questions in your mind of what does it mean to be human a lot of times and what does it mean to be living in the world that we are and operating the way that we are in the world today there's a line from morrow that actually resonated with me and resonates with me even more lately as we get the the reports about the Amazon being on fire is that um, she can hear the trees cry out as they're dying and hear their pain and that Ashitaka can't. And I feel that that line has so much more to it than just, you know, she's a forest spirit and she's a god. There are people and there are animals and there are, you know, entire ecosystems that are crying out and largely their voices are being silenced and they're being silenced because it's not convenient or it's not profitable for their voices to be heard. And I think it, this film only gets more prescient as time goes on and as we see more of the impact that humans actually make upon nature. And it it deeply saddens me that, you know, somebody would try to reduce it to a children's film because it has, <sighs> I mean, it's, it's from 1997 and it's messages about nature and humans are still very, very prevalent today and are discussions that need to be happening, problems that need to be solved and taken a deep look at. I feel to cheapen it down to oh, well, you know, it isn't black and white and uh, it's it's not a typical kids movie is very disappointing to see from, from a critic. And obviously the message that uh, Miyazaki was trying to get through didn't reach him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, as I said, it's a rare negative review and it's it's not a very good one, I'll just say. What what is your favorite of this? Is this is this your favorite of the Studio Ghibli films? You know, strangely, it actually isn't. Um, my favorite of the Studio Ghibli films and my favorite Miyazaki film is actually Howl's Moving Castle. Hmm. 
but Princess Mononoke was my introduction into the Miyazaki universe. It was the first Miyazaki film that I ever watched, so it will always have a very special place in my heart. And while Howl's Moving Castle does have some humanitarian notes about it and it's more about self-reflection, I feel that the overlying message of Princess Mononoke is one that I can very deeply connect with and one that I can holistically stand behind as far as humans have lost that respect and reverence for nature and we desperately need to get it back because the time is running out for that. All right, well, let's take a look at the algorithm. Uh, The algorithm, you know, recommends other movies you might like based on this one. Uh, So this is kind of a lightning round. You tell me what you think about these suggestions. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you wonder why the hell they're there? Uh, Anything like that. So as I said, kind of a lightning round. Here's, and I've pulled out the other Studio Ghibli films. That's part of why I asked you about that. So these are other films uh, outside of that studio that the algorithm says you might like. All right. Uh, Akira. Uh, I have not actually seen that. Okay. Uh, your name. I have no clue on that one either. Me either, and it worries me because the keywords on IMDb were upskirt, taking shirt off, and cleavage. Ah. And I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with Princess Mononoke? <laughs> Algorithm, what are you doing? Yeah. Go- <laughs> uh, Ghost in the Shell. Uh, Ghost in the Shell, I actually do love. Um, that's That's a pretty classic one as far as anime goes. Not the Scarlett Johansson version. Right. <laughs> of course not. Uh, the Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Um, I do enjoy that one. Um, I, I, I haven't seen it in years, but I do enjoy that one. My Neighbors, the Yamadas. Uh, not certain on that one. I, I don't think I've seen it. Yeah. Um, and it had something interesting to it. But now I can't. I don't have it pulled up. Paprika. Um, Paprika, I have not seen, but I am interested in. Um, I've heard that it's quite trippy in its artwork, um, and I hear that it's very surrealist. So it's definitely one that I would give a watch. Okay. And lastly, we uh, end with the pop quiz. Are you ready? Sure. All right. Number one. The phrase Princess Mononoke is only used once in the English adaptation of the film because it is more of a descriptor than a name. What does Princess Mononoke translate to? A, daughter of wolves, B, environmental royalty, C, vengeful spirit, or D, beautiful warrior? Mm. My first gut is to go with A, but vengeful warrior makes sense too. Well, it's vengeful spirit is C, or D, beautiful warrior. Oh, okay. Well, vengeful spirit makes sense. But I'm going to say daughter of daughter of wolves. Should have gone with your gut. It's C, vengeful spirit. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, Number two, when Harvey Weinstein asked about trimming the movie down from its 137-minute running time, how did Miyazaki respond? A, he politely nodded in Japanese tradition and trash-talked him later. B, he allowed the cuts but then switched prints so the longer version wound up released. C, he challenged Weinstein to a duel with with the winner getting rights to the cut. Or D, he sent Weinstein a katana with the words no cuts etched into the blade. I'm going to go with D. That seems like a Miyazaki thing to do. That is absolutely what he did. He stormed out of the meeting and then sent 
Weinstein, I a katana with the word no cuts so etched into the blade. He was still bitter because one of his easy, earlier films had gotten trimmed down, and he felt like it was really kind of messed up in the, uh, in the cuts. So he refuses to let his films be cut anymore. Well, see, there you go. Miyazaki is a poignant man. Oh yeah. Even when he's telling other people to fuck off, <laughs> he does it in a very poignant, poetic way. <laughs> uh, all right, number three, Princess Mononoke beat E.T. the Extraterrestrial as the highest-grossing film in Japan, a record it held onto until it was unseated by what epic film? A. Jurassic Park. B. Titanic. C. Avatar. Or D. The Avengers: Infinity War. What was A? Jurassic Park. I'm going to go with Avatar. Nope. Titanic. Really? Yeah. And I realized I put, shouldn't put Jurassic Park in there as a choice because it came out before Princess Mononoke. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> I was like, I feel like Jurassic Park was an earlier film. <laughs> no, it was unseated by uh, Titanic. Okay. All right. Last question. The creator of what project has publicly given credit to Princess Mononoke as an inspiration? A, Jurassic Park, B, Titanic, C, Avatar, or D, The Avengers Infinity War? I'm going to say Avatar on that one. That's correct. James Cameron said that he uh, holds Princess Mononoke as one of the things that inspired him to make Avatar. Well, there is, you know, there's definitely some parallels within the the storylines there as far as preserving nature. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, where can people find you? Do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, anything like that? Uh, no. Um, I don't really have anything to promote. I don't do any shows or anything. So, But you can find me on Instagram at MoonshaneCat um, if you'd like to. Mostly post pictures of my cats. So if you like that kind of content, you'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kat, thank you for uh, bringing Princess Mononoke here. It was great to revisit the film, and uh, uh, you had a lot of good things to say about it. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, what do you think? Do you appreciate Miyazaki presenting a balanced vision, or would you rather have a more overt villain? How can we continue to ignore the ecological message at the heart of this movie? And where does Princess Mononoke fall on your favorite list of Studio Ghibli films? Let me know what you think. You can find me at HaveNotSeenThis on Twitter, or on Facebook at HaveNotSeenThisPodcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's show, which takes Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons into the jungles of South America. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I'd appreciate it more if you just help spread the word and help me build up some listeners. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Kat Milliner for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you, or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll try to get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.